You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I am still an associate professor, but soon to be professor, of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I am joined this afternoon by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are things? Things are good, Nathan. Good, 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 good. And also on the line, Dr. David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David. How you been? Oh, I'm 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 well. Have been better. Have been worse. You know, kind of splitting the difference. Right Com si, com sa. Something like that. Well, we've got uh, some shows coming around on the network. Uh, Michael, you've got a profiles interview about to drop. Do you not? I do. Yeah, it's with Craig M. Gay. His book, uh, Modern Technology and the Human Future, which I, I enjoyed thoroughly, and uh, I think the interview is pretty good, too. Good, good, good. We've also got a uh, sectarian review. Danny's talking with another artist uh, who goes by the artist name. I, I, I know pen name. What's the, Is there a corresponding term for visual artists? <laughs> nom de paintbrush. <laughs> who goes by the nom de paintbrush, dirt son of earth. Uh, so I'm looking forward to listening to that one as well. Uh, of course, you know, all of these podcasts are available wherever you can find podcasts to download, so please listen to all the shows on our network. And today, uh, here on the Christian Humanist Podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about a famous speech, uh, and this one was given in Detroit in 1964. The speaker is Malcolm X, and the speech gets called The Ballot or the Bullet. So, Michael, our listeners can and should review our episodes about James Cone. Uh, from last October, those are numbers 247 to 249, and my Christian Humanist Profiles talk with Adam Clark, that's number 146, uh, to get some broad historical background on the particularities of 1964. We won't rehearse that again here, but I do want to ask about one event in particular. Uh, this speech, you know, makes at the very least indirect reference to uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 mar- March on Washington. What aspects of that does Malcolm X seize on as he makes his case for a different version of black freedom? Well, he says essentially that black people got taken for a ride in that march. He says after he put uh, after he put down that march on Washington, and, and the he is the white man there, after he put down that wa- march on Washington, and you see all through that now, he tricked you, had you marching down to Washington, had you marching back and forth between the feet of a dead man named Lincoln and another dead man named George Washington, singing We Shall Overcome. He made a chump out of you. He made a fool out of you. He made you think you were going somewhere, and you end up going nowhere but between Lincoln and Washington. 
So I think the issue here is that the march on Washington didn't change anything. It made a lot of people feel good. It made them feel like they were being heard or whatever, but it didn't actually do very much. I think also part of the problem is that the march relied on interracial solidarity, and that made it easy from Malcolm's point of view to be for it to be co-opted and defanged by the white man. It was kind of domesticated, uh, the, the, um, the civil rights movement. Uh, when when white people joined in, I think would be his position. I, I think it's interesting because King, in the very famous letter from a Birmingham jail, which we talked about years ago, he takes on white moderates. That's his major. Uh, that's ma- his his major target in that letter. Malcolm X is taking on the white liberals. I mean, he's talking. He's taking on the people who were on Martin Luther King's side. They're not going far enough, and and part of that is because he has this drive for i was going to say racial purity that is not a very hospitable way to say it he has a drive for racial solidarity um that that maybe king didn't have as much of uh king's gates were open a little wider than malcolm's were do you think that's an accurate way to put it yeah i i think that they are open in a different direction if you allow me to tweak your metaphor just a little bit so where king you know kind of had this imagination and i mean you can hear it in that i have a dream speech right of gates wide open to all americans uh malcolm's vision is a more pan-african global gate uh that is not open you're right to a lot of americans but is open to a lot of people in africa and in you know other the caribbean and other parts of the world uh in a way that you know dr king didn't necessarily shut the gates to but it just wasn't his scope that seems right to me, yeah. David, I realize we're kind of starting in medius res here, but I mean, uh, is there anything else about Malcolm's treatment of the March on Washington you'd want to add? Um, I mean, all of this is, and this this is my first encounter reading reading Malcolm X. Um, this is this is all very 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 new to me. Um. So it's it's interesting to me to to encounter this this other perspective um, on on the disappointment with I guess the, the the failure of that that vision of of peaceful direct action um, and I you know it, it's 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 hard not to say that he has. Uh, that he has a point about um, the reasons for its its ineffectualness, um, but I imagine this is some that's something too that we'll be talking about more as we go on. Oh, absolutely, and and, and again, I, I wanted this conversation to be kind of free form rather than you know going in the you know personal experience and then historical background and yada yada yada. So we're experimenting a little bit. But David, uh, Nathan, before you go on, I'm I'm glad you brought up the Pan-Africanism thing because, to some degree, the argument between King and Malcolm X is a recapitulation of a tension between W. E. B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. Absolutely. And I I, I was almost going to say Booker T. Washington and W. E. B. Du Bois, but I don't think that's fair because I don't I don't think that King is really very much like Booker T. Washington, who's no, I'd, you know, say, I'd say he's a lot more buckets, like Du Bois. Yeah, yeah. Let your buckets fall where they may. That's that's Washington's slogan. 
but you, you have you have a difference between liberalism and radicalism that comes up again and again and again in this speech, uh, and that that difference is between Du Bois and Garvey, at least certain stages of Du Bois's career. He he changes quite a bit as time goes on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, David, I want to turn to another uh, aspect of this, and listeners, by the way. Uh, there will be in the show notes both the link to a transcript of the speech and to YouTube audio of the speech if you do want to hear or read this. Uh, it'll give you some background. But what I immediately noticed, David, is I, I started looking again at this speech, and I've been looking at it on and off for a few decades now, was that Malcolm insists on religion as a private matter, which honestly is something that surprises me about this speech. It's, it's secondary to the larger struggle. And, you know, in spite of, you know, the differences we just talked about and, you know, really strongly worded differences uh, between, you know, the civil rights movement as exemplified by Dr. King and the black nationalist movement that Malcolm X is, is advancing, he nonetheless claims King as a political ally. So rhetorically, what kinds of identification or persuasion seem to motivate this move and similar moves in this talk? Now, you'll have to correct me uh, at this point, um, but in, in my understanding, just kind of the, the broad strokes of Malcolm X's geography, uh, biography, um, that he had uh, at some point um, been converted uh, to Islam in the context of, of, of the movement that, that we now know as the Nation of Islam. Um, yes, indeed. But, yes, indeed. But then had stepped back from it. Yeah, and this speech he gave in the process of that stepping back, uh, okay. and in fact, he gave this speech just before he made his famous trip to Mecca, which really kind of signaled a, a more definite break with Elijah Muhammad. Okay. So... Uh, I, I was reading that uh, when you know the, that one uh, that one sentence when it says I still credit Mr. Muhammad for what I know and what I am. He's the one who opened my eyes. That that's still there. Um, uh, to to me, I wonder. I wondered if that was an indication of the, that. That's that's where uh, the speech is falling. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yep. he ha- he he has to say that in order to indicate that some of the rumors that are flying around that there's been a radical break between the two are overblown. Right. Well, my understanding is that uh, these moves that he's making of reaching out to um, other Christian ministers as Christian ministers, like uh, like King or like these others, uh, these, these other ministers he names, um, uh, Adam Clayton Powell, um, and... You know the 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 others uh, that he names in this this you know beginning paragraph near the beginning, um, uh, at least from 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 my understanding of it, he's he's not necessarily those are not necessarily moves that he would have made um, prior to this when um, Christianity itself was regarded as uh, a a necessarily. Uh, disempowering even emasculating religion that was imposed upon um black people by white people in order to subjugate them right yeah and and again what makes this interesting is that 
in the autobiography, which gets published after this, mm-hmm. you know, he he is still referring to Christianity as the white man's religion, mm-hmm. and you know, he says at a couple points he thinks Allah that he had, didn't become a brainwashed Christian, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he also says things in different passages of the autobiography that you know, uh, what's important is not that you are Muslim, but that you are a human being. And that you approach him as a human being. So he, he's a complex figure. So, I mean, the yep. fact that you are finding ambiguity here uh, means that, you know, you're reading him about as I read him. Cool. So the uh, the way that he's reaching out right, right at the very beginning, it's one of the very first moves that he makes. Uh, he says, I'm still a Muslim. That is, my religion is still Islam. My religion is still Islam. Um, and... He talks about a. Uh, I'm a, the minister of a newly founded uh, mosque uh, in Harlem, and we realize that uh, Adam Clayton Powell is a Christian minister. He has Abyssinian Baptist Church, but he's more famous for political struggling. And Dr. King is a Christian minister from Atlanta, Georgia, or in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's become more famous for being involved in the civil rights struggle. And then he names a few more. Um. And then he makes this this point, I don't believe in fighting today on any one front, but on all fronts. Um, in fact, I'm a black nationalist freedom fighter. Islam is my religion, but I believe my religion is my personal business. It governs my personal life and my personal morals, but um, we don't need to be... Um, were we to come out here discussing religion, we would have too many differences from, from the outstart. We'd never get together. But instead, what's going to bring us together is uh, is this same political goal that's going to come through that um, that racial solidarity that Michael talked about. So, um, so in this case, he he doesn't want to say that religion is unimportant, but he's going to make it personal. Um, and the point that he makes later on is that. Uh, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack us for the same reason. So, the, And that's the passage of the speech that James Cone quotes yes. towards the end of God of the Oppressed. Yes. So in this case, because the social oppression is happening on the basis of race, those who are united under that oppression because of their race can and should unite on that basis against the oppression. Um, Focusing on the matters that divide within the group is only splitting their cohesive strength um, against, against the oppression, right? So, you know, to, to focus on the thing that divides them and the thing that he's foregrounding here is, um, is specifically, uh, religion is to is to divide the front. So uh, that makes, I, I, you know, within the context of that speech of the speech and within the context of that moment, that makes a lot of sense. And I and I think that's a principle that you see at work um, between a lot of groups who find themselves sometimes even um, uneasy allies in in the same, uh, the same cultural, uh, or, or sometimes even military struggle. Um, you know, 
it's kind of interesting to look at uh, who were who were allies against whom in World War One, and what side were they on in World War Two, and it's not always the same. Um, and how many people were um, were easily allies in each of those situations. So you know the principle that 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 makes sense to me. Um, the one thing, though, that I I think and and it's it's maybe less direct. He talks about their singing in the marches, um, in the march on Washington. He talks about the singing. Uh, as as being ineffective, you know, we need to stop swinging, singing, and start swinging. Um, yep, yep. At at that point, um, it looks to me like he's making at least some kind of veiled dig at the at the uh, the kind of Christian tenor that was in Martin Luther King's approach, and probably the baritones too. Yep. You know the whole the full range, um. So he so you know my, my my impression as I was reading through this whole thing is that he doesn't want to make it he doesn't want to foreground the differences between them, uh, religiously, and yet he is going to subtly suggest that some people's religious approach to the struggle has made them less effective in it, um. So, I mean, would you do, do you do you see that as as a significant part of this argument? Um, I, I'm I'm wondering whether that's just an whether that's just a side dig or whether he's kind of trying to bury his critique under um, under some amicable talk. Well, like I said, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this with you guys is because, you know, years ago I read uh, James Cone's book, Martin, Malcolm, and America, where his thesis is that Martin and Malcolm really approached each other and almost came to a, a common point just before Malcolm was assassinated. And when I was rereading this speech, it occurred to me that, I mean, this is an exemplar of Malcolm at least trying to reach out. But then, David, you're absolutely right that you know, with with one paragraph he'll reach out, and with the next one he'll go back to, but, you know, you guys aren't really allies that are worth anything, because all you do is sing, you don't swing. So, right. I, I, Michael, I mean, what, what what do you make of this ambiguity, or is it ambiguity at all? I, I think it's a rhetorical technique, right? I mean, he, he is, this, this speech is given in a church, He's, he's addressing an audience he know he knows is going to be at least somewhat hostile to him or at least skeptical of him because he belongs not to um, not to African-American Christianity, but to uh, black Muslim, black Islam, uh, nation of Islam. Uh, and so he is he's he's digging at him, but in a way that he knows they'll think is a little bit funny and disarming. I mean, yeah. to me, it just it just shows his rhetorical mastery because he knows exactly who he's speaking to, and you can tell um, if you listen to the if you listen to the audio or read a transcription that has uh, has audience reactions in it. I mean, he's got a meeting out of his hand. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I mean, if these are if these are folks who were 
at all persuaded in conscience by the the kind of ideals that are sketched out in Letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, we are going to offer our bodies to be harmed in order to awaken the conscience of those who watch. You know, the, I mean, that that's so much of the letter from Birmingham jail is, is essentially saying we are going to, we are going to be Stevens who will be stoned in hopes that there will be souls in the audience, um, who see that witness born. Um, but that whole, that whole approach to, to, to struggle is, is something that, you know, that, that Malcolm is not, re, you know, re, regarding as, as effective or laudatory, doesn't, doesn't see the value in it, pokes fun at it. And by the time you get to the end of this speech, um, he's making pretty pointed references about guerrilla warfare and cutting people's throats in the night, in the, in the dark jungles. And, and people are laughing and applauding. And if these are people who had in any way been persuaded by King's approach, it's 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 really strange for me to see that um, that that reaction coming across in the speech. But I guess, I mean, I guess, I, I I I don't know. It was it was hard hard for me to know to know how to take the audience's reactions. I didn't listen to it. I, I just read it, and I'm just noting the places where it says laughter applause. Yeah, I gotcha, I, I gotcha. I, I, think, I think you may be taking it more literally than the original audience might have. I mean, that, I mean that, that's, in, that's entirely possible. But, right, and also it's at a church, but I don't think it's during a worship service. I could be wrong about that. No, I think that's right, but it okay. is at a church. Okay. Right, but I mean, you know, uh, you know, meetings of Garveyites would happen at black churches, you know, during Malcolm's father's generation, right? I mean, that's what yeah, Malcolm's father enough. was traveling around doing. He would preach at black churches, and then at night after service was over, he'd hold Garveyite meetings. Do either one of you want to quickly sketch um, what you're referring to when you talk about Garveyites? I know what you mean, but just in case that's that's unfamiliar, it might be helpful to say who are, who are we talking about. I have a I have a very distinct picture in my head when you say that. <laughs> yeah, I do too. It's the uh, portrait of Garvey that gets hung on the wall in season two of Luke Cage. But uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Garvey was a Pan Africanist, uh, and so you know his advocacy was always for uh, political, economic independence for. Uh, black people worldwide. So, I mean, you know, his uh, sense of history was that, you know, after centuries of the slave trade, exploitation, colonialism by the French and the Germans and the British, that, you know, black people worldwide had more in common than they had with their European ancestry countrymen, and that therefore, you know, a new political order should rise up uh, in which, you know, black people are the primary political allegiance, uh, rather than people who are, you know, happen to be living within the same border. Uh, Michael, is there anything else that you would add to that? No, I think the, the Pan-Africanism is the big deal there, and, and the, the kind of radicalness of it. The, the 
I don't remember how violent he suggests being, but certainly this is an overthrow of, of present day social boundaries and the like. Yeah, at the very yeah. least, he posed for photographs dressed up, dressed up like Toussaint Louverture, so that's something. Right. Is was he suggesting a a a return to Africa? Is he is 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 he one who was suggesting that as part of his pan pan African nationalism? I feel like that was part of it, Michael. I, I'll have to confess that my Garvey reading is spotty at best. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that either. I'm sorry. Okay. I know that Du Bois moved to Ghana mm-hmm. the last few years of his life. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, Michael, I want, I want to turn a corner here. None of us here is an economist, of course, but Malcolm's Call definitely has a core business element to it, so we should address that. Uh, what changes in American buying and selling does Malcolm call for in his speech, and what political consequences does he posit that flow from the economic but go beyond the economic? So black nationalism, which is what he's speaking in favor of, is ultimately an economic nationalism. What he wants is black people to own the businesses in black communities. Uh, and, and so what he's doing is he's connecting freedom with economic opportunity, because if black people are not free to own their own businesses and control their own communities, they're not meaningfully free. They're still being controlled, if not owned, by the white people who essentially own their neighborhoods. And, and in the past, he says white people have used economics to divide black communities within themselves. And this is another reason to take it back. It'll be much harder for uh, white people to divide and conquer if they don't own the stores. What's interesting, though, is it goes beyond just ownership. So he wants to remake the entire community into a black image of itself. Why? This is why he complains about uh, white Jesuses and black churches. Black communities ought to be black. And part of that is being is owning your own stores. And part of it is just the neighborhood should be what the people are. Economics is a big part of that. So are social movements and organizations. So I think that's what he's pressing for economically. That's about what I got. I mean, David, anything to add? Uh, I, I, I find it... Um... I find it interesting his uh, well first the the notion of the that that the stores within the community were owned by people outside the community, um, but also communities that don't have their own um, that are not uh, I guess affluent enough to have stores within them having to, you know again having to leave the community but he you know that that connection between money and race and space. Um, wanting all of those things to be, you know, kept within the same circle uh, is is interesting, um, especially when you consider how much of um, how much of what King was doing in uh, southern cities, especially you know the city I'm from, Birmingham, um, was all about getting black citizens the right to shop in the store this the same stores that white people shopped in you know to come into the short store through the same entrance um those those sorts of things uh this is this is it's a it's a completely different vision of 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 economic freedom um which is still segregated but it's segregated from from the other side 
you know, they're not being kept out of something. They are, they are, they are able to develop their own separate and parallel structure because they have the freedom and the resources to do so. Um, the economic freedom that they're sinking is not one in which they are recognized as side by side, um, equal customers. It's that there's two different stores. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the black ownership of businesses is a big deal. Uh, even, even now you really see how far ahead of his time Malcolm was in that. It, I mean, if, if I told you there was a black neighborhood where all the stores were owned by white people outside the neighborhood, I, I think almost everybody would be irked by that at the very least. Every, almost everybody would recognize there's something wrong with that. But I mean, he's, as you point out, he is making this call at the same time that Martin Luther King, who must have, who seemed like a radical, right, to white America. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the FBI uh, had a file on him. Right. So, so he's he's. He's making this much more radical call at the same time King is making a call that seems common sense to us in 2019. Yeah. Well, and as you Pretty said, cool. Michael, both of them sound common sense to us, right? You know, like, if, if, again, if we heard, you know, a narration of a store that wouldn't let black people in, we would find that just revolting. But like you said, if we heard about a neighborhood where, you know, all of the stores were owned by, you know, white people in Manhattan... Uh, you know, we would at the very least sense that something was off. I, I think you've just described every, uh, every small town that has nothing but a Walmart. Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. I don't think you're wrong. Except for, you know, usually not nearly as many black people. That's it. That's right. Well, and Walmart's based out of Arkansas. Yeah, true. And I guess, I guess Bentonville, Arkansas is not Manhattan, is it? <laughs> not exactly the same. Well, anyway, David, when when Malcolm calls for black voters to step away from their, you know, what he calls unearned loyalty to the Democratic National Convention, I see certain points of continuity with calls from, you know, the last several years of our lifetimes for white Christians to break ties with the GOP and to embrace a different divine locus of loyalty. And certainly there are stark points of contrast. Um, yes. So, I mean, do you see these distinctions as more important here, or do you see the shared interest as more important here? The sh- shared interest, what do you mean? Um. So, in other words, I mean, you know, the commonality of saying, uh, you know, these political parties really aren't for you, stop pledging your honor and loyalty. Oh, oh okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Sorry, when you use that phrase, shared interests, uh, I was still thinking of, um, you know, a couple questions ago when he was talking about reaching across um, communities of religious difference because of, oh, I gotcha, I because gotcha. of shared interests. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, I you know, like I said, I mean, okay. what, reading it in 2019, you know, two mm-hmm. years and some change into the Trump administration, it, this just struck me as very stark that, you know, I mean, this is uh, the call of a lot of, you know, sort of never Trump evangelicals saying, OK, at this point, you've really got to step away from the GOP. I mean, it's a common gripe. And yes, I've I've heard I've heard people I've heard, you know, you, you hear never Trump evangelicals saying this to evangelical Christians. Um, this is a uh, a corrupting political um, alliance that you've made, um, but you know, I, I I also hear it in 
you know, in, in, in the other direction as well. Um, uh, you know, you, you know, you can still, you, you, you can find, um, African-American conservatives who still say the same kind of thing that Malcolm X says about Democrats and the black vote, except they're saying it from a completely different political vantage point. Um, but I mean, this is, this is a common complaint and it, the complaints are similar from different perspectives because they're all generally true, right? Um, politicians need a voting majority to win. Um, there are seldom monolithic voting majorities, which means you have to flirt with a bunch of different agendas and goals in order to get into office. But not all of those agendas and goals are the ones that you really want to pursue. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, you know, radical rhetoric and moderate action. Um, there's a lot of bait and switch. There's a lot of Lucy and the football. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, I mean, uh, when, when, when Malcolm X was saying that, I was just sort of nodding my head. Yes. Yes, friends. This is what, this is what the political parties will do. And he's analyzing precisely why, um, he's, you know, he, he walks through the voter demographics and says the white electorate is, is pretty evenly divided. And so this party has figured that by courting our vote, it can get majorities. It can get in office. It, it did that. And yet, you know, they are dependent on the, on the black vote for for their majorities and two-thirds of the government and yet they are blocking the legislative agenda that is in our interest well why is that because even though their even though their voter block um was necessary um it's not actually the majority of their voter block <laughs> so you know it's 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 one of the ways in which political parties um build alliances of voting that don't translate into alliances of acting. Um, and, you know, I, I've heard exactly the same thing, you know, from, from, you know, pro-life people who say, seriously, every time it's election year, the Republicans talk about being the party of life. And when it comes time for them to actually vote for stuff, um, and it becomes critical, they don't. So, you know, what are you going to do? They didn't shut down the government over funding Planned Parenthood. Right, right. Yeah. And I, and I guess this run of the speech, David, I mean, I just resonated with me this go-round because the thought that occurred to me that hadn't occurred to me when I read this before because, you know, it wasn't after 2016 the last time I read this, uh, is that, you know, if all of the evangelicals who wouldn't hire a preacher who posed on the cover of Playboy had, you know, voted against a president who had posed on the cover of Playboy, this would have been a very different story. Well, yeah. And it seems like, and, and again, you know, I, I don't want to downplay the differences, and, I, and please, listeners, don't hear me as saying that, you know, these are identical cases, uh, but certainly the math is similar. Yeah. Um, one thing that one difference that I would like to kind of probe a bit 
Uh, and this is something that we, we talked about a bit when we were looking at um, Cone's God of the Oppressed. Is that the the good that um, that Malcolm is wanting black the black community black voters to um, to guide them all right what what good what good should be guiding us politically um, is is the good of uh, the black nationalism that we've been talking about specifically the um, the economic independence the political um, you know, a political voice that, that actually matters, you know, and so forth. Right. Um, but this is a, this is an, an, an imminent good versus the call, uh, to evangelicals to break ties, you know, as your, as your question phrases it, break ties with the GOP and, and embrace a divine locus of loyalty. Um, you know, one good is imminent, you know, Malcolm's good is is an imminent community this this time spacely political good um, divine locus of authority is you know I would call that a transcendent good yeah yeah and and an eschatological good as well right I mean one yep. one feature of the nation of Islam that gets really highlighted in the autobiography of Malcolm X is that you know there is very little talk of any kind of afterlife, much less any kind of apocalypse at the end of the age, right? Now, he, he drifts away from that as he moves from Nation of Islam to what I'd call International Islam, but certainly at this point in his career, he's still very suspicious of really any reference to anything beyond the life that we live right now. Right. Well, uh, I mean, a couple of questions that I was thinking in response to you. Your, your question got me thinking about this is first how do you get one what i would call an imminent good to arbitrate between other imminent goods um because you know some you know someone might say um hey christians you know whether conservative or progressive we all need to unite um you know to you know protect the unborn or, hey, all of us progressives, whether religious or secular, we all need to unite to defend the earth. Or conservatives, whether libertarian or, <laughs> or you know, traditional moral conservatives or whatever, we need to unite on this thing or whatever. Like, there's, there's always some imminent good that's going to be calling us to set aside other imminent goods. Um... And that there, there's there's always going to be that call that says, you know, set aside this one, you know, set aside this other uniting coalition building good, because this other one is really the one that, that needs to be getting the priority. Um, that's kind of the, 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 the first thing that I wondered. Uh, the second, and this is the thing that reminded me of James Cone, and is the degree to which James Cone's vision of what is good and righteous in the world um, is all shaped by um, the reality of oppression. Evil is fundamentally oppression. Good is fundamentally resistance to oppression. Um, and one of the things that uh, I thought was a weakness in 
and Cohen's approach is that it may it basically makes the fact of oppressors um, the it's is always the first fact in your moral calculus or whatever moral form of math it is that you're doing. Um, the you know the oppressor always goes first. Evil always gets the first move because good is defined by reaction to it. Um, you know, in the same kind of way, uh, a lot of his his rhetoric about the the good that should be uniting the black community is is very often framed in terms of the way that it resists this power structure um, that you know, as he describes it, is 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 you know is evil and should be confronted and resisted. Um, but doesn't say as much about what lies at the back of it. Is there is there any kind of good beyond the resistance, um, other than you know other than this 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 freedom to be your own separately exclusive society that to me looks an awful lot like the mirror image of the oppressive society that they want to push back at. I don't know. I mean, that, that, that was one area in the way that he frames this, that it, it does seem to be distinct because his horizon is the edge of this world and this life and this situation. Um, it, 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 it seem it, it's, it, it seems to be a limited parallel to me. Yeah. I think one interesting passage that might speak to that, David, is his invocation of the American revolution as uh, you know, an analogy to their own movement. Uh, so, I mean, I think yes. that, you know, one defense of the American Revolution is that, you know, it was not a war to subjugate the British, but instead to establish, you know, a polity that runs alongside Britain so that a true friendship becomes possible in a way that it wasn't before. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot so, it. I forgot about that piece. I'm glad you reminded me of it. Cause that, yeah, that, yeah. So I mean, I, I think that's one thing that you know is from the way I read it, and you guys can obviously correct me. A misconception about black nationalism is that it is, you know, a simple mirror image where the oppressor and the oppressed are flipped. Yeah. The, the yeah. impression I get from a lot of Malcolm's writings and from James Cone's writings, for that matter, is that the goal instead of that is to be neighbors in a way. Uh, that, you know, doesn't heal the oppression that happened before because only God can do that, but creates space so that the wound doesn't continue to tear open. Does that, does that distinction make any sense or am I overplaying it, do you think? Makes sense to me. I think that helps. I'd forgotten about that particular passage and it was, um, when I hit that, um, I found that was very interesting because it, it, it also reminded me of, um, you know, because the the text that I that I I much I'm I I engage with much more frequently is Letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. You yeah. know, but he's he you know he definitely has those parts of Letter from Birmingham Jail where you see so clearly this working out of the logic of the Declaration of Independence. Right. So it's interesting that Malcolm invokes the same era, but for a very different rhetorical purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that, that I found interesting, the, the, both of them sourcing, um, white European founding fathers as, uh, sort of enunciating the, uh, enunciating 
the principles um, that they're building on. These are right, still... and rhetorically, I understand why Malcolm does this because he is talking to American, you know, people. Uh, but I, I wonder why he didn't go to Toussaint Louverture on that particular moment because it seems like that would be a, a much more direct analogy. And again, I, I think so. it is just because he's addressing an American audience. Mm-hmm. Well, I you know, I, this is he's he's also an american dealing with an american community and and you use the you use the tools that are there right i guess louverture wouldn't have necessarily been in their history books back then either right not necessarily <laughs> that that just now occurred to me i'm like oh duh that's his audience probably wouldn't have heard of him uh well at any rate uh, michael we are recording this episode uh, in the year after billy graham's death uh, and in year three of the Trump administration. So uh, we've got to talk about the Billy Graham passage at the end of the speech. Uh, Malcolm claims that Graham represents white nationalism uh, as opposed to his own black nationalism. Now, in what ways have that phrase's connotations shifted uh, between this speech and our own moment? And what, if anything, still rings true about his assessment as of Graham as a sort of opposite to Malcolm X. Well, he's obviously not saying that Graham is a white nationalist in the sense that he's in the KKK or he would approve of Charlottesville or whatever. I mean, that, that's clearly not what he's doing. I think maybe he's saying something closer, he's something closer to what we might call a white supremacist, although removed from the more extremist versions of that phrase too. Uh, I think what he's saying is that Graham more or less assumes the rightness or the centrality of white culture. And I think if you think back to the white Jesus in black churches, to have a white Jesus is to assume that whiteness is the standard. So, of course, Jesus is white, even in this church where nobody else is. He also talks about Graham's structure, and he describes it almost as a mafia. There are all these different territories, and Graham tries hard not to step on any toes. He just comes in and tells people to go to their local church. Um, and I, I think... I think that's something similar to what he's doing, right? At the beginning of this speech, he, he says, yeah, I know we don't have the same religion, but um, let's put that aside. And, and you go to your church and join your organization and do the things you need to do, but understand that we're really fighting for the same goal. So I think, I think he's taking inspiration from him there. Oh, I think but, he openly says he's taking inspiration from that. Interestingly, um, Billy Graham's website describes him as a close friend of Martin Luther King. Um, but I think maybe Malcolm would say that King had imbibed a fair dose of white nationalism himself. That he was insufficiently radical. Uh, on that website, by the way, there are also some answers that Graham gives to questions about racism. And I think they're germane. So he says that racial or ethnic prejudice is a sin in the eyes of God. He says that racism is the biggest social problem we face in the world today. He says that God created each race and gave them their unique identity. It's, it's hard for me to see that as white nationalist or white supremacist. But he says, quote, there is only one answer to the problem behind racism. Find peace with God. And I think that's what Malcolm X would take issue with. That is a private solution to a broad cultural structural problem. It, and it allows the nation to continue to be white instead of changing the thing, the systems that are oppressing black people. King and maybe Graham are liberals. Malcolm is a radical. The system has to change. It's not enough for individual people not to be racist. 
Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read Graham against his own grain in that statement. And you know, if you read that in a sort of Augustinian uh, register, if you will, I mean, you could say that the systems have to come to peace with God, and that statement would still be true. I don't think that's probably what Graham had in mind. No, that doesn't but sound I think, like Graham. Uh, but but you know, you you did the same when we did Christmas bells, so I'm I'm just gonna reverse that on you. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, but I, I think, yeah. I think I, when I, when I read those answers, I was like, well, this all sounds pretty good. And then I got to that one and I said, oh, I mean, that's, that's where the white nationalism is. And it's such an inflammatory term. White supremacism is too, but that, that's where the notion that, um, we'll all be okay as long as we can all just kind of get along, not, not recognizing that there are, are much deeper structural problems at play than just individual human hearts. Well, and what's interesting too, is that there's not at least as I read it and as I listened to that uh, section of the speech, I didn't hear a whole lot of moral revulsion. It was more along the lines of, hey, look at how good they are at that. Let's do likewise, but for our ends. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that um, did happen, I I don't remember the dates. Um, I remember, oh, at one point, um, Graham had... uh, criticized King for speaking out against the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, he had supported uh, he had supported King in a lot of different ways. Um, according to some things I read, actually bailed him out of jail um, on some occasions. Uh, but uh, when he when he shifted to that that foreign policy critique um, to the, the anti-war critique um uh, Graham's reaction was was kind of a stay in your lane, um, which because um, because Malcolm in this speech he has things to say about Vietnam as well, and he particularly sees that as a um, you know that speaking out against the the Vietnam War is something that black people had to do because it was not. It was not their war, and they needed to resist being um, compelled to take part in it, because it wasn't about a fight for for their community and their good. It was fighting in defense of a system that he saw as inherently corrupt and oppressive to his people. And so, for him, critique of the Vietnam War is part and parcel of um, the his his political ends and so um i I wondered if that if that was also um informing some of his reaction to to billy graham you know you know you're fine with civil rights marches but you don't want us actually talking about you know that kind of political change right right and then i mean there's another wrinkle still which is billy graham's own very aggressive anti-communism yeah which, which manifests as an anti-semitism sometimes well I, I wouldn't even go in that direction although I, I don't you know dispute that but you know to critique the vietnam war is to critique the struggle against communism so i mean that in itself probably would have rubbed graham the wrong way right well given that at this point you know communism was also kind of you know in the soviet union and china 
you know, sort of suppressing Christianity. Um, you know, I could, you know, Graham, sort of, so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Graham, Graham. I mean, that's Graham's interest. That's always his interest. He's always thinking about things through this evangelism lens. You know, if you ask him, what's the, you know, what do we do about racism? His answer is going to be convert the human heart, right? Like, he's a hammer. Everything looks like that nail. <laughs> you know, but in, in a lot of ways, I, I see, you know, Malcolm X as, um, as a similar, uh, a similar person who sees his particular interest as the lens through which all else appears. You know, so I, you know, I, I'm not entirely surprised to hear him to, uh, I wasn't entirely surprised to read him speak of Graham in that way because of the ways in which he sees all of these features of, of, of culture, um, impinging upon each other, linked together, you know, all of these gears mesh, you know, in his mind. And for, you know, for Graham to speak against some things, but not against others, to support some things and, um, not others, um, is, 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 is simply to, you know, leave the, leave some of this important structure, um, standing untouched. Um, yeah, you know, that, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised by that. If, 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 if that makes sense, you know, if you're standing where Malcolm oh, yeah, X is standing, sense. you know, that's a thing that makes sense to say. Um, I do, I, I, I am still kind of annoyed by the, um, white Jesus, white Mary, all the rest of it. Um, it would be, it would be really nice if, I, I don't know, I, I, maybe maybe this is just because i'm i'm such a product of the time and you know christian um contexts you know in which i've rolled and in which i've been raised um but jesus is jesus um cultural and ethnic rootedness within a community that is not mine is to me such an such an important fun informative part of the way I think about being a Christian um, that to me m m changing Jesus color to match mine feels deeply offensive you know so yeah that know. makes some sense and I, and you know to his credit I mean Cone insisted on the historical Jesus being a Palestinian Jew who is, you know, neither European nor African. Yeah. Even as he yeah. insisted on a black theology. Yeah, and and I appreciate that. I, I appreciated that in Cone. But you know, I No, I know what you're saying though. Yeah. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I mean should 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 we change, you know, all of our gods, all of our leaders, all of our artists, all of our everything to match the color of the community we're in because now solidarity with our own race is the one true good yeah but i mean do you think malcolm x would have a problem with there being a middle eastern jesus in black churches the problem is we've changed him from being middle eastern and instead of matching the community we've we've forced white jesus on black churches so i mean 
if, if you're against changing it, that's one thing. But we're talking about changing it not to look like mm-hmm. the people in the church, but to look like their oppressors. Yeah. I, yeah. And I guess for that reason, I've never, you know, begrudged, uh, you know, Our Lady of Guadalupe, just to give another example, right? Uh, you know, that is a vision of yeah. the Blessed Virgin who is decidedly, uh, you know, not Palestinian, right? Yeah, uh, but probably closer to Palestinian, uh, probably closer to the real Mary than most of the other representations of her. At least she has dark hair and dark skin. Touche. Yeah, it, it does. It doesn't seem. It does seem that the Blessed Mother uh, visits people on their own terms. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, in artistic representation, I, I don't begrudge that. It, it's interesting. I'm going to be conducting a profiles interview with an art historian here coming up, and that's that's a conversation I'd like to get into on that one. But that's that's coming up. So, anyway, David, I want to uh, finish in Medius Res, which uh, Horace tells us usually comes at the beginning of the text. Uh, so we'll do beginning, middle, and end here, right? Uh, Malcolm begins this speech in Detroit, as we said, April 1964, and he begins it with this line, Mr. Moderator, Reverend Klieg, brothers and sisters and friends, and I see some enemies, and if you listen to the audio, the audience eats that up. It's like Michael was saying, this guy is a rhetorician that would give Cicero a run for his money. Those opening seconds, though, give us a pretty good sense of what makes this speech memorable, something that we're still reading 55 years later. So, you know, let's be rhetoricians for a moment here. Uh, Where does Malcolm, you know, in addition to the places we've already pointed out, most clearly demonstrate master of this techne that we call oratory? Yeah, it's it's all throughout. Um, One of the moves that he seems to... Uh, favor is this one that he's making right out the gate, which is to observe conventions in order to break them for effect. And so he'll have, you know, he'll have a passage or two which seems much, which seems maybe a little more um, kind of mundane political analysis. And then it will shift into um, uh, a more, you know, a more. Uh, a patch of almost, you know, preacher rhetoric or, you know, a fighting speech or something like that. Right. So, so he'll, he'll, he'll kind of change, he'll shift that tone. Um, He's also very frequently in the way that he speaks, positioning himself as the truth teller who has to be polite in order, impolite in order to say what is real. You know, the, the, the truth teller who's like, okay, I have some things that I need to say, and I'm going to step on toes, so I guess I'll just do it. We've got enemies here. I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we had an audience this large and didn't realize we had enemies present. Um, you know, that, that kind of speaking of the thing that's, you know, perhaps in the back or even the front of people's minds, um, you know, naming the elephant in the room. Uh, is 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 something that he does, um, and it's apparently very very effective. The the applause and laughter, um, in brackets in this printed version is uh, in this transcript is is frequent. Oh, and it's it's uh, accurate too. I mean, that's why the speech takes fifty three minutes to listen to, <laughs> and not that long to read. 
Um, one of the th uh, one of the things that I did note is uh, periodically he has um, rhetorical runs that re that use repetition in a way that uh, I associate with African American sermons. Um, you know, so things like uh, "All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag in the same boat." Right, so he's he's got the same, 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 same um, alliteration. You know, stop singing, start swinging, um, which is kind of hard to say fast. Um, repetitions of they become disenchanted, they become disillusioned, they become dissatisfied. That that repetition um, with close variation is something that I associate with um, the rhetoric of African American sermons. Um, you know, th those are the, those are the main things that I'm noticing. Um, the, the way that he positions himself as the guy who's going to say the thing that everybody's thinking, but nobody wants to say cause it's rude. Um, the ways that he's, um, shifting, shifting registers between, um, between the, the sort of political observation and the, uh, the brash, um, more the the brash confrontational um, or colloquial uh, description of things um, he deploys uh, slang in an interesting way um, because it's not throughout there's just these moments where that's that's the hook and that's where he bursts through the um, bursts through kind of the the polite precise veneer in order to say the true impolite thing um, you, you see the shift of language uh, and and that repetition. What, what other things am I not observing? Because I'm frankly not as systematic a rhetorician as you are, sir. <laughs> no, I think you hit a lot of it there. I mean, I think that, you know, part of what you hear with the audio especially is, I mean, just what you were talking about. I mean, there's a definite cadence to his speech. Uh, you know, although he is an autodidact, he never went to seminary. Uh, he definitely has an ear, if you will, uh, for how to, you know, deliver a speech as well as to compose one. So uh, I, I'd recommend to listeners, like I said, we're going to put that link to the YouTube audio up there. I mean, even if you don't listen to all 53 minutes, have a listen to some of it. Uh, Michael, is there anything, any other uh, rhetorical features that you want to highlight before we head for the door? No, let's head for the door. Let's head for the door then. As we wrap up today... Uh, I'd like for each of us to present one valid question that this speech poses to Christians in particular in 2019, and one point on which we differ from Malcolm's call, even as we acknowledge the good question. So, Michael, you lay out your dialectic, then pass it along to David, and I'll take us home. His criticism of the white liberal is really important. Those of us who think that we're on the side of the oppressed, are we really? What are we doing about it? Are we trying to maintain a white structure to society, even if we don't believe in black nationalism as such, are we fighting for a world free of white nationalism in the broader sense? That's really important. What I disagree with. He makes a variation of King's argument from natural law. King says that people have an obligation to break laws that go against the higher natural law. Malcolm makes a similar point, but instead of a natural law, he talks about human rights and about constitutional law. Those things are fine. Uh, I find them less convincing, especially to people outside of his milieu than King's rhetoric. Um, but then, I mean, 
Malcolm X is less interested in convincing people outside of his milieu, I think, so it makes sense. But I find the move from national uh, natural law to constitutional law to be uh, a mistake just in general. David? Uh, his, his question, uh, uh, to, to what extent do you need to continue um, to... Uh, abet a united political front that no longer um, seeks to preserve the goods um, that you've structured your life around or oppose the evils uh, that threaten uh, what you have built your life around. Um, you know, that's, that's a real question to consider. Um, uh, added to that is, um, you know, flipping, flipping that question around is the way that, um, common cause can make um, sometimes odd allies, I think is something um, that we also need to seriously consider. I'm thinking of things uh, like um, a couple years ago um, when Russell Moore took a lot of flack um, for filing an amicus brief for uh, a Muslim group uh, in New Jersey who wanted to build a mosque, and a lot of Southern Baptists did not um, did not approve of that. Why is this Christian helping Muslims? Um, but it was because, uh, you know, more recognized that uh, Christians in America stand uh, in the face of uh, an increasingly secular system in the same position that, that, um, that Muslims do as people who are, you know, seeking to preserve some kind of um, independence or or, or liberty to worship according to conscience. Um, and so, you know, in, from his mind, um, preserving that good sometimes will mean allying with people that it might seem a little odd. Um, a place where, where, where I differ, uh, I feel like I'm kind of riffing a little bit off of yours, Michael. If you find, um, uh, if you find King's use of natural law or divine law more compelling uh, than Malcolm's use of, of kind of constitutional law. Um, I also find King's um, uh, use, uh, King's uh, referring back to kind of a unified human good, which is then anchored in a divine good, uh, even an eschatological divine good, to be a more compelling governing term for 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 our action than um uh than s community solidarity however that community solidarity is defined um not that the other is unimportant not that it isn't worth considering um but uh his move of let us set aside our our religions in order to pursue this thing um i see that as a tactic um but not a strategy, if that makes sense. Well, th you think back to the conversation we had about Cesar Chavez three weeks ago. And, yeah. I, I mean, one thing we discussed is the reason Chavez was able to get anger to work for him is that there was this higher metaphysical principle that most of his compatriots were, to some degree, committed to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, think, I think that, that larger horizon is is something that would be 
that would be important that is not in this speech. I don't, I, again, because this is all, I, I haven't read his, uh, I haven't read his autobiography, you know, that you were talking about, Nathan, or other things. Maybe that, maybe that larger horizon is there elsewhere. Um, but I don't see it here, and I think the the argument suffers. Yeah, it definitely does emerge there. Uh, but this podcast isn't about that book, it's about this speech, right? Um, I, I think the point, the question that I think uh, Malcolm X raises for Christians that I think we should take very seriously uh, is where we locate the political we. Uh, one of the things that he critiques is this notion that we automatically are Americans together. Uh, and of course his alternative vision to that is Pan-Africanism, as we talked about. Um, but I think that Christians in 2019 would do well to ask, uh, to what extent do our connections with fellow believers, you know, on six continents, uh, relate to our relationship to Americans as fellow countrymen? Uh, and I think that, you know, in moments where, you know, we are just kind of instinctively national citizens first and foremost, and then you know, our religion is, you know, just kind of an incidental thing. Um, we do well to consider that, you know, both of those categories are up for grabs. They're not entirely arbitrary by any means, uh, but they're also not absolute. So I, I appreciate that this speech uh, really brings out that uh, possibility for, you know, further inquiry. As far as the disagreement, and, and unfortunately I, I showed my cards early, uh, it is his invocation of the American Revolution that I, I find troubling, largely because, I mean, his larger vision doesn't seem to be uh, a sort of geographic separation, uh, although certainly he hints at that at times, uh, but more along the lines of uh, communities within existing political orders that are nonetheless, you know, economically independent, and then politically, um, he wants to preserve the possibility for political tension. So in other words, he doesn't say, stop voting Democrat, let's all move to Liberia. He says, stop voting Democrat until the Democrats actually pay heed to what we are saying. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, his invocation of the American Revolution there indicates, you know, uh, a desire for geographic separation but then his larger project relative to the political parties is within the system insist on you know the black community as a real political force that has its own agenda on its own terms and I think that little bit of incoherence like I said kind of dilutes what I think is the better point which is if the Democrats want the black vote make them earn the black vote so uh, guys I thank you for uh, having this conversation with me like I said I I revisited this speech uh, earlier when I was I was getting ready actually for a, a Black History Month event at Emmanuel College, and I said I I think this would be a good text for us to dig into together, and I I, I like the fact that we've uh, been able to have this conversation, and we're going to have another conversation next week. Michael, what's it going to be about? We're going to talk about Japanese aesthetics, and we're going to read this essay by. Junichiro Tanizaki, I think it's pronounced, called In Praise of Shadows. That essay is available online if you just Google In Praise of Shadows. You'll find it, a PDF of it. Uh, so read it, folks, and listen to us uh, talk about it next week. Excellent. 
listeners, thank you for uh, jumping in with us. Uh, you can find us, of course, at ChristianHumanist.org on iTunes, all over the place. If you want to contact us, uh, correct you know some of our historical gaps in our knowledge, you can uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can find us on our Facebook page. Uh, you can also go to iTunes and leave us a review. We always appreciate that because that directs more listeners our way. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger.